It is my privilege to invite you to take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and as well, if you would take your sermon notes from your bulletin, this will give you an, an idea of where we're going. More on that in just a moment, okay? So I want to begin by telling you just a bit about a crisis that I faced two days ago. I could call it a faith crisis, but you know, don't, don't think of that as more dramatic than, than, than what you might. You know that this past week, Kathy and I were in uh, the Cincinnati area attending the IFCA convention. IFCA is the umbrella organization that we're a part of. It's a fellowship of Bible churches. And uh, we were there for the annual meetings as we typically attend those. Covington, Kentucky, uh, more properly, right across the river. Well, uh, so, so Thursday morning, we were leaving early because we needed to drive from Covington to Detroit to catch our nonstop flight back here to get to a wedding uh, where the flowers came from. Uh, so, so I was in the parking garage at 545. That's AM for some of you who aren't sure about these things. And I was doing what you often do. Uh, I got to the parking garage, crossed the street and so on. And I, I wasn't quite sure where I'd parked the car. It'd been a couple of days. I'd been in meetings. You know, these things get fuzzy. There's a parking garage. How hard can it be? I thought I was on the second level. So I did what you do. I went up to the second level and I start, you know, like this, nothing happened. Zero. I saw a car. I thought, it's a rental car. It's not like you're close. So, but I'd seen black Malibus all week. I knew they were all over the place, including in that parking garage. Nothing happened. I thought, okay, third deck. Went up to the third deck. Zero. Nothing happening. I thought, wow, was it that? Was it that full? It could have been. Taylor Swift was coming to town. I don't know. So I went to the fourth deck, and once again, nothing. I was starting to sweat. We've got to be on the road by six. We've got a flight to catch in Detroit. It's a you know, several-hour drive. We've got to get going, and where's our car? I'm not going to text my wife. She's waiting at the hotel with the luggage and say, I can't find the car. I mean, that's really embarrassing. Surely nobody stole it. I mean, who steals a car out of a parking garage? And then anyway, so I went down to the third deck, did it again, nothing. Second deck, and right at that, it's like, okay, stop and breathe. I, my, my, I'm very sincere about what I'm doing, very sincere. Uh, my faith is in the fob. It's supposed to, how could the battery have died? This, I'm calling it a faith crisis. And, and then I took a good look. I thought, okay, orient yourself. And I took a good look at what I was trusting. And I was actually using the fob for my car back home. Um, 2,334 miles, according to Google, away. No wonder it didn't answer. So I switched fobs, and of course, the first car that I thought was ours on the second deck, that was Iliad. Uh, so all the other traipsing around and sweating and preparing to call 911 to help them find my car, which would have, that would have been embarrassing if they ever came. Well, I say all of that because some people, I think, as I reflected on this, approach uh, faith issues. I say religious issues, Bible issues the same way. They say, well, this feels really good to me. I'm extremely sincere. I mean, if anybody would say I'm sincere about something and I put my faith in this object, uh, surely this would count. I was extremely sincere. My faith was in an object. I thought it was a good object. I, I mean, for goodness sakes, I followed the best of science. But I had my faith in the wrong object, didn't I? So until I went back and looked at it and said, oh boy, what am I trusting? Then it became very clear. Well, uh, this summer, 10 weeks, we believe. We've been talking about this for some weeks. And um, we're, we're attempting to do something that is very intimidating to those of us who preach. Uh, our normal bread and butter is to preach through Bible books. And we'll return there again this fall. 
But, but for 10 weeks, we, we worked on this together as a preaching team, wanting to address 10 core issues of doctrine. This is going to be substantive for all of us who preach and for all of you who listen. Okay, I consider you active participants in this process. So you're going to have to, I mean, if you came today thinking automatic pilot, oh, think again, brother and sister, because we got some work to do, some heavy theological lifting today, and I'm really going to ask you to, 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 to bring what you have, okay, to, to, to think and to, to think biblically. So on your sermon notes, I'm not going to read all this for you, but this introduction to the series, I'll, I'll let you take the time to read this. The second bullet point there, uh, obviously one of our core concerns, we live in a day of emotion-driven determining of truth. And of course, I put truth in that context in quotes, uh, meaning people often say, this feels good to me. This makes the most sense to me. Surely, I mean, this makes me feel better to believe it this way, rather than say, what does the scripture say? And if you only go with what works for your little heart or your little brain, this makes sense to me. I'm telling you, you're going to put your faith in, in, in eternal things on the size of your little brain. That is a real problem. So we want to come to search the scriptures and say, what does God say on this topic? A reminder here under our approach, again, I won't read it all for you. The Bible is not a theological dictionary, which means I can't go to the T's and find something about Trinity. Uh, someone will aptly point out that the word Trinity, our topic of the morning, is not in the Bible. That doesn't give me any heartburn at all because the term is one that theologians have used down through the years to, to do the best to understand what the Bible says about God. And that's what we're going to work on doing today as well. Triune triunity, perhaps a better word than trinity. I understand, but these are terms that theologians use to try to capture what the Bible says. We'll attempt to do that today. So searching the scriptures, looking to see what the Bible says and wanting uh, as as much then to, to understand, to believe it, to glory in it. And as I put here, to willingly submit ourselves to what we find week to week in this study. One word of warning, then we're going to pray together. And I'm going to say, gird up your loins. Here's my warning to us. Uh, there, is, there is a great danger in the church of Jesus Christ on theological reductionism. Now, if you watch the Food Network, you know what a reduction is, right? You put all this stuff in a pan and you stir it and you boil it, and you boil it, and you boil, it comes down to this sweet sauce, they say. So we've got a such and such reduction to go on top of your whatever it is you're serving. It means you boiled a bunch of stuff out of it. We do this with theology in the church. That is, we sometimes boil things down to the point where we say, will this get me in or out of God's heaven? And if it doesn't get me in and out of God's heaven, I don't want to think about it. And people do that with the Trinity. It's like, well, can't explain it, can't understand it, never mind, move on, get me something. What's our key word? Practical. Well, may I just say, there are incredible practical things about understanding more about the Trinity. So beware of the danger of theological reduction and and embrace. Put your mind to work here. Uh, You'll do a bit of that today. I want to pray for us. We'll jump into this, all right? Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your people as you've brought them here today and for the, the scriptures in front of us. And pray that the Spirit of God would use the word of God to help us today. To, to, to wrap our minds about what you are like, eternal God, creator God, holy God. So give us some glimpse of this today and an appetite to know more. That is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. 
Uh, I forgot to mention earlier, welcome to those of you on our live stream. Uh, every week, there are many of you who join us, uh, some who are hindered by uh, physical needs, some who are traveling, and others who watch later. And we hear from all those categories every week. So welcome, all of you. Thank you so much for joining us. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, I go to my first bullet point uh, on your sermon notes, okay? And I want to begin with this affirmation. I'm going to go fairly quickly at some points uh, through notes and slow down on others, and I think you'll figure this out. From beginning to end, the Bible affirms that there is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 is one of the core texts of the Old Testament, known and loved by uh, all those who know and love the Bible and certainly the Jewish crowd, uh, the Shema. Of course, Deuteronomy 6.4, and it's called that uh, in Jewish thought because of its first word, hear, hear. So Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Or as you see here, another reading of this, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. So Deuteronomy 6.4 is a, is a great declaration of the unity, the oneness of God. Now, interestingly, and I'll, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a number of things and, and move to others, okay? So you could quickly say, well, back up a bit more. I, I know, can't do it today. But, but the, the term here un, under unity, it's emphasizing more unity than singularity. And I give you on your notes here a reference to Genesis 2.24 that says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So, so the issue there is not singularity, but profound unity. And I think a similar idea here in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. I suggest you here, as in other Old Testament texts, these are whispers of the Trinity... Uh, We'll go to Genesis 1 in a moment. Far greater light in the New Testament with the coming of Christ. And we'll go there as well. Now, a a word of, uh, I guess, caution as well. Many illustrations I'm saying here have been offered to help us understand the Trinity. Uh, Perhaps if you've been around a while, you've heard someone say, oh, I can explain the Trinity. It's, It's like an egg. Like yellow and white, and there's a, there's, a, there's a shell. I mean, there's an egg. It's, God is like an egg. Or God is like an apple. Uh, there's skin, and then there's the white part, and then there's the seed. There's God is like an egg. Or a clover. Or water in its three states of solid and gas and liquid. God is like that. Uh, may I just say, I hate all of those. Please don't use them in our Sunday school classes. Um, just, just don't. Um, there's nothing about saying God is like an egg that makes me tremble in awe. Uh, It doesn't make me want to sing holy, holy, holy. And each one of those, if you press them theologically, fall far short of trying to explain what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. So, you know, you might say, well, then give me a better one. No, I'll just give you scripture and we'll go straight with what the Bible does. And I would say if if God himself thought that an egg or a clover or an apple was going to help us understand the Trinity... I think he probably would have put it on the pages of scripture. You'd go to Isaiah 40, and it would say, God is like an egg. And you'd say, well, apparently, no, it's not there. So skip it. I'm just saying all fall disastrously short of capturing biblical truth. Don't do that. All right? So first point, right? The, 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 the affirmation of the Bible, there is one God. Okay, now, with that, I'm going to go to Genesis 1. Ordinarily, again, I stay in one place pretty much in the Bible today and probably for the next nine weeks, not so much. We'll do a little bit of journeying around. I want to go to Genesis 1 under the section I'm calling a study, well, a lesson in theology. 
Now, theology, of course, is a cool word. It means the study of God. You're familiar with other ologies because you went to junior high. Geology and uh, all these other ologies that you've had to study. There are a lot of them in theology as well. So you have theology proper, the study of God. Soteriology, the, the study of salvation. Pneumatology, study of the spirit. So, so the study of God here, and I'm coming to Genesis 1, and I want to point to several things, and please, please engage your mind here as we think together about God. So in Genesis 1, the first words of the Bible are profound. If you think metaphysically or philosophically, here is the declaration of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, full stop. There's enough there for you to think about for a long, long time. The Bible begins by affirming the existence of God. In the beginning, God. The Bible does not say like uh, what all of that was like. We'll talk about that in a minute. Other collections of, of thought from the rest of the Bible. But as it begins, it asserts the existence of a God who could create the heavens and the earth. That would be billions and billions of stars filling the universe. He could hang them all in all of their places and have order and structure and beauty and purpose. They don't smash into each other and self-destruct. He could do all of this, we read in the Psalms, by his word. He could speak and the worlds would exist. Here, God said and it was. You'll find that all the way through Genesis 1. God said and it was. Think of that kind of power. Now, there are those, perhaps you with your three-year-olds, who would say, um, Mommy, Daddy, who created God? Let me help you with that. If there was someone, like a bigger being who created God, who could create the God who made all of this, that, that being would be bigger than the God spoken of in the Bible. So that one would be God. Then you would say, Mommy, Daddy, who made that God? Somewhere along the way, I'm giving you a gift here today, so I'm saying Merry Christmas. Uh, no matter how you do this, you are forced to grapple with you believe in God or you don't. You are forced to deal with the eternal here. Either you deal with an eternal God, as the Bible teaches. In the beginning, God. The God who created all. If you say, I don't think I believe in God, or I'm not sure about that, you're agnostic on such things, may I say, you're stuck with eternal matter. Because all that blew up, Big Bang, if you're going down that path, all that blew up had to come from someplace. Otherwise, it couldn't be there to blow up. Where did that stuff come from? Came from a prior, uh uh-huh, work with me now. Where'd that come from? You see a problem here? You are stuck with your three-year-old with eternal And you do it every time you look at a night sky. And like the ancients, you look out there and say, does that go on forever, mommy, daddy? Because if it doesn't, then what's at the other end of the the universe in any direction? We're forced as humans to deal with things beyond us. So what's out there? Say say the planets and stars come to an end. Then it's what? Nothingness. How far? What, forever? No, it comes to a wall. There's a big wall. What's on the other side of the wall? How thick is the wall? This will keep you awake tonight. You're not sleeping. I promise. These are things three-year-olds ask, and you sit there and go, I don't know. I'm going to go ask Pastor Jay. Well, he doesn't know either. I just know the declaration of Scripture. In the beginning, God, the God who is, the God who has always been. 
created all that is. That's what the Bible says. I think it's a pretty good answer. I think if there was a better answer, God would have given it to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, look at my notes here, please. Don't leave Genesis 1. We're not done. I want to give you a couple of terms here. And uh, my goodness sakes, my attempts to boil down 2,000 years of, 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 of theological thought on these things as the New Testament provided fullness. The ontological trinity ontological. Who uses terms like that? Well, people who study metaphysics and uh, philosophy, they use terms like that all the time. Ontology is the science of being. Being. The study of. Ology of, 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 of being. That which is. And I want to say several things, even without fully explaining them all. The Bible describes God, that is the Trinity, as an absolute equality. So I have here, same line, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Bible describes those three persons in the one God as absolutely equal. There is not a, like, one who's more holy, one who's wiser. No, the, uh, co-equal is a term that sometimes is battered around. It's not bad. Co-equal in deity, in holiness, in glory, in power, in authority, never divided, all these terms matter. Eternally existing in Trinity or triunity. That is, the Son has always existed as the Son. Biblically speaking, there was not a time when the Son, God the Son, was not God the Son. He did not become God the Son when he was born in Bethlehem. At that point, he became God the Son incarnate in a human body. But even before that, he functioned in all of eternity as God the Son. Categories that translate into our humanity by God's design. I put here uncreated, uncreated, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There never was a time, biblically speaking, when Jesus was not. By the way, this was a big controversy in the history of the church, if you know your church history. The 300s in particular, Arius, there was a guy who said there was a time when Jesus was not, that Jesus was the first creation of, of God. You find that represented in Unitarianism today and Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? Just to say the obvious. Uh, those would be two um, descendants, uh, loosely so, of Arius back in 325, uh, the, 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 the Nicene Creed and so on. Athanasius was, a, was one of the, the great men of that time who took on Arianism and fought for terms in the Bible to say, no, there never was a time when Christ was not. He is of one substance with the Father. And again, I'm summarizing massive chunks of theology, eternally existing, but I'm wanting you to hear God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in terms of ontology, absolutely equal. Okay? Are, we with, are you with me on this? Absolute equality in being. Now, uh, I wanted to read there. I put standards. I really want to just read. There's a, a, a statement here in a book from a theologian of a hundred and some years ago. by the name of Robert Layton. Okay, so quoted in a book called The Deep Things of God. Uh, how the Trinity changes everything. This was light reading this week on airplanes. Um, but, but So he's quoting another theologian to say what I have wanted to say. And I'll expand on this a small bit. He says this, Before there was time or place or any creature, God, the blessed Trinity, was in himself, and as the prophet speaks, inhabiting eternity, key phrase, completely happy in himself. 
I'll say something about that. Intending to manifest and communicate his goodness, he gave being to the world and to time with it. He made all to set forth his goodness. That's purpose. That's why he did it. To set forth his goodness and the most excellent of his creatures, that would be humanity, to contemplate and enjoy it. Completely happy in himself. So, really an important detail. Why did God create? Was he, was he as I remember hearing as a child, was God lonely? Was, was he bored? Looking at this vast nothingness and saying, not much out here. No, proper theology of God, theology proper, and I'm using proper in two different ways here, of course, um, would say, no, God, one in himself, whole in himself. God, if he were dependent on his creator, creation, would be less than God. If God needed us to be happy. No, absolutely not. He did not create because he was lonely or bored or dissatisfied. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, happy. A happy place in the Trinity from all eternity. That would be a biblical understanding of Trinity. Um, Now, in Genesis, before we step to another category... I want you to see here then, in Genesis 1, I want you to go down to verse 26, if you would. I mentioned whispers of the Trinity before we leave Genesis 1. Indeed, and a couple of other really important elements here, and again, I touch on them and trust you to extrapolate a bit and think, please think more deeply on these things as you wrestle with biblical theology. But Genesis 1 then, so God creating, and in verse 26, we read this, then God said... Let us make man in our image. What an interesting expression. Us make man in our image. Man here, meaning not man in his maleness, but mankind. Humanity, we might say. That's fine. That term is not not man in his maleness. That will come in a moment. Let us make man in our image, image of God, and plural is expressed here, which is a whisper of Trinity, I would suggest. Let them, humanity, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Therefore, so, you see the consequence, verse 27 flows from that statement in verse 26. So, therefore, God created mankind, humanity, in his own image. And here's what God did to fulfill verse 26. He, he made, in the image of God, male and female. That's where male-female came from, to express truth about God. Please understand this. It flows into marriage later as the expression of marriage takes place in the rest of chapter 2. So, so God created male and female not simply to propagate the species, although it does work that way. You might have learned that in, at some point, hopefully very young. Well, God created male and female not simply for propagation, God created male and female to teach us of himself. Absolute equality. And as we'll see in a moment, differentiation. So God in creating, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. He was teaching by what he made. There was a purpose. It wasn't you. (laughs) It was bigger than you. It was God teaching, teaching us what he is like. So we have, stay with me on all this, oh please. In terms of ontology being, that metaphysical term, absolute equality. Okay, now we shift. You turn the page or whatever that is for you. Uh, 
the economic trinity. You understand economy. It's how things function. This is not about dollars and cents and the gold standard, but the economic trinity. Now, please get this. Oh, this is important. Such implications. In terms of function, all these terms matter. Unified, willing, distinct, complementary roles. And I mentioned, again, this is a whole uh, element as well. Roles, I say, are, do not mean modes. That does not mean modes. That heads down another area of, of heresy called modalism. Uh, that, that's, so the idea there would be that when Jesus prayed to the Father, he was pretending like, like God was like the Father, and then Jesus came, and then he switched over here, then he switched over here and became the Holy Spirit. He operated in different modes. And the Bible says no, no, and no. Holy Trinity, blessed Trinity, not different modes. So, but I'm saying here, in terms of function, this God who is in ontology absolutely equal, nevertheless, there is economy. There is difference of function. Um, Equality does not mean sameness. Just let that percolate through your life. Equality does not mean same role for everybody. That's not it. It's not true in God. Humanity is created to reflect truth about God. So you have in ontology, equality in being, and in economy, different of function. And I just want to show that to you. It's in the Bible. Didn't make it up. Okay? So I'm now shifting to Ephesians 1. Again, ordinarily in our preaching throughout most of the year, we're, we stick close to one text. Today, doing a little more discovery, more broadly. So before I mention these four categories here under the economic trinity, I'm going to the first text, and that's the only one I'll go to here. Ephesians 1, I want you to see these categories described in Scripture. So the Apostle Paul then in Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3, I want you to see the trinity here. Blessed be the God and Father... Of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father, Son, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This paragraph, of course, 3 to 14, one sentence in its original presentation. Even as he, God the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, God the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer, second person of the Trinity, we would say, according to the purpose of his will, the will of God the Father, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is Christ. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. And so on through the text, you find Father, Son, Holy Spirit operating together seamlessly, united, unified, I'm saying, willing, distinct. So look at my four bullet points, please. So the Father elects or ordains, chooses The Father sends the eternal Son to be the Savior of the world. I'm giving you 1 John 4.14 that says the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The next line, the Son eagerly, willingly, and joyfully obeys the Father. Please get all these terms. Wrap your head around this. You mean that the Son willingly, eagerly, joyfully obeying the Father does not mean he is less than? No, it does not mean that. Ontology, in terms of it being totally equal, and yet economy, function, roles, the Father ordains, 
sends the son who joyfully follows, joyfully obeys. Jesus will say so much about that in his earthly life as reflected in the gospels. The father sends the eternal son to be the savior of the world. Third bullet point, the spirit then proceeds, cool word, we'll read it in a bit. The spirit proceeds from the father and the son. Sometimes this is reflected in a triangle. If I had more space on notes, I would have done that. The Father sends the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. The Spirit regenerates, indwells, convicts, breathes life. And as you see in John 14 and 15, points to Christ. Points to Christ. The function of the Spirit. Even as he points to Christ, I say often, where, where the Holy Spirit is most active, Christ is most glorified. Think about that. The Holy Spirit does not feel neglected when you worship and honor Jesus Christ, the Savior. The Holy Spirit's not saying, over here, over here, little love, please. No, the work of the Holy Spirit is to say, look to the Son and be saved. So under that category, lesson in theology, crash course in seminary, this is semester's long stuff. Ontology being God, the God of the Bible, always has been, always will be eternal always existing in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, happy within himself, each member of the Trinity, uncreated, joyful, not needy, absolutely equal, and yet roles. Roles do not indicate lack of equality. Okay? Now, with that, I'm saying a visit with the Apostle John, and it'll be quick. But I go to John not because he's the only one who speaks of these things, but because he says some good and substantive things. So if you look at your notes there, I gave you five uh, little bullet points. I'm not going to all of them. You're welcome. I'm aware of the movement of time and what we're trying to do in one morning. I've got it. We're working hard here today. But I want to make a couple brief comments about those three that are, are in bold. I want you to see that what John says is reflective of what I have said. Uh, hopefully I have reflected what John would say. So John 1, verses 1 to 18, kind of the prelude, the prologue of all that is to come in the gospel of John, this telling of the story of Jesus. And so John, this dear friend of Jesus when he was here on earth, he says these things as we begin. In the beginning was the word, the logos. The word was with God and the word was God. What a profound way to begin this gospel. Uh, He was in the beginning with God. This is speaking of Jesus, as we'll see in a moment. All things were made through him. You read that in the New Testament, not the Old. All All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then shortly we'll get to a story of John the Baptist, but I come to verse 9. The true light, this is Jesus again, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own received him not, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, to believe in the name of Jesus is to believe that all that is, to believe all that is true of him. To those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of God, the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John clearly said, this is Jesus I'm speaking of. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And again, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, that is God in all of his fullness, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. Jesus exegetes 
the Father to us. When you see Jesus, why Jesus would say in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's why he would say that. Now, John then, throughout this book, says a lot about his role to the Father. So I'm going to go to John 10, moving past John 5 and 6, letting you study those. Hopefully you study as a follow-up to a sermon. Please do. Read those texts. You'll see a lot of other things to make your head swim, since that's the goal, I guess. Uh, Chapter 10, then, John 10, this chapter on the good shepherd, the great shepherd, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Next verse, the Jews take up stones to stone him. Jesus says, why? They knew exactly what he said in that context. They knew exactly what he said and what he meant. He says, why are you going to stone me? They said, it's because you, being a mere man, have made yourself God, which is exactly what Jesus meant to do. Wow. They understood. First century. John 14. Just a couple of verses. And I'll hit implications. And we'll draw some things to a conclusion. Oh, boy. John 14. I just want you to see some of the things we said earlier on the pages of Scripture John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus, this is his last speech before the cross. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, this is the Spirit of God, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the, Father, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Ministry of the Spirit of God. Chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, we've said this, the Father will send, Jesus says, in my name. He'll teach you all things. Bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Chapter 16, then, similarly, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says. He'll point people to me. This is, of course, chapter 15, verse 26 as well. Wow. He will glorify me. Now, I'm moving to the section called implications, and I'm just going to ask you to pull all of these things together Uh, These are other texts I would urge you to read. I'll just tell you about them. If we had another semester to talk about the same things, we would go to all of these and more. In 1 John 4, you find these wonderful statements about love, that we are to love one another because God is love. uh, Verse 19, we love or we love him, old King James, because he first loved us. The Bible declares that God is love. Please, please, can you get this and mull it over in the middle of the night? The fact that God is a triunity means that this is possible. Um, Michael Reeves, if you want to read more, love this for theology books. Look at that. Uh huh. Yeah, you could read this. It's very accessible. Michael Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity. Or again, Michael Reeves, How the Joy of the Trinity Inspires Our Mission. Okay? So both of these super good books, very accessible. Michael Reeves, you could get those, read them this week. They'll go more down this, this path. But, but the fact that God is a trinity means that for all eternity, there was an object to his love. If, if there was no trinity, 
then through all eternity, we say God is love, there would be no object of his love. For all eternity, he would have been like alone and not able to love anywhere or anyone. But the fact that God is Trinity means that for all eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, perfect unity, delighting and sharing love within the Trinity. Just mull that over. I'm not asking you to get it all today. I'm saying please enter it into your theological banks and mull this over. Now, and finally then, John 17. This is what we call the high priestly prayer of Christ. And this is uh, John 17. Before Jesus goes to the cross, he prays this wonderful prayer. The, the final movement of that prayer is when he says, God to his Father, I long for all those who know Christ as Savior to be with us, to be with me where I am, with you, to behold your glory. That is to delight in the triune God for all eternity to see my glory. I want them to be with me one day. He's praying that we who know Jesus will one day be in his glorious presence. And I go right away to the response to God's word. Full of first point, when we think about eternity, it's not about clouds and harps and ponies. Will there be ponies in heaven if it'll make you happy, honey? Uh, will there be hot fudge Sundays? I'm hoping so, but that's not the point. No, it's not about those things. Is it about golf games in the sky and fishing trips in the heavenlies? No, no, and no. What a small view of heaven. To think that the glory of heaven would be about hot fudge Sundays and ponies. Dear friends, what kind of heaven is that? No, what Jesus is praying, that we would have unhindered access to behold the glorious triune God and to serve him in his broad universe forever. You want, a, you want, a, you want an adventure? What, fishing trips in the sky? No offense to anybody, but that's it? Your view of heaven is very small. Jesus would blow that up and say, you trust Christ as your Savior. You'll be with me one day to behold the glory of a God who is, the God who could speak the worlds into existence. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, glorious. Wow, you get to be in his presence. I think God wired us to like mind-blowing experiences. We get it at the Grand Canyon. We say, wow. We see other, you know, night sky. We say, wow. Let me tell you, there'll be a day when you stand in the presence of God, you're going to say, wow, on a whole different level. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, glorious Trinity. We honor and worship him. The offer of salvation comes from the triune God. God the Father calls you to believe in God the Son, who died on the cross in your place. When you trust him as Savior, the Spirit of God indwells you, gives life, regenerates, convicts of sin, points you to love Christ. Salvation is Trinitarian. I beg you to think on these things in glory, what the Word of God says about your God. I want to pray. Then we'll celebrate communion as a seal to all that I've said. All right? Pray with me, please. Oh, Lord, uh, we have tried to do a lot. The measure of success is up to you. Thank you for giving us these glimpses of blessed Trinity in your call to us to think deeply on these things. As Isaiah said, to behold your God. We long to do this. Even now, our fathers, we turn our thoughts to Jesus, Savior, God, the Son, Redeemer, his work living a perfect life, dying on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, rising from the dead, ascending to heaven, 
coming again. Our Father, in this Savior, your provision for us that we could know you, we delight. Thank you for these moments in Jesus' name, amen. Listen carefully. If you know Christ is your Savior, we invite you to share with us in receiving communion. Communion is one of the, what the Bible would describe as the two ordinances of the church, baptism and communion. Both teach a story. They both tell a story. Communion is that, tells that story of the work of Jesus on the cross. It's intended for those who know Christ as their Savior, special to those who know Christ, less special, not meaningful to those who don't. But, but the two little elements in a, in a communion service, a little piece of bread of some sort, that, as the Bible describes it, points us to Jesus, his body broken on a cross. And the little cup of juice points us to the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross by which we are saved. And in t- taking those little elements, we tell again the story of Jesus in his life, death, resurrection. And we remember because Jesus told us that. You people forget all the time, he would say. So remember. Remember the work of Jesus on the cross. So in a moment, I'll invite you to come. When, when we're back at our seats, it'll take a minute. We'll reflect on the words of the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. I'm going to read just a couple of verses from Hebrews 1. It's like bonus material. And then together, we'll remember Jesus. Okay, there's the plan. If you'd come and be served, please. Hebrews 1 begins a glorious book that tells of Jesus and his beauty. Begins like this. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Glorious description of Jesus, more to come. He made purification for sins, ever worshiped in heaven as our Redeemer and Savior, the one who left the glory of heaven, took on humanity as we'll study in weeks ahead, bore our sins in his body on the cross after living a perfect life. He bore our sins in his body on the cross, died, was buried, raised again the third day in power, ascended to heaven. Jesus, his body broken for us, that little cracker, reminds us of his body, points to his body, bruised and broken for us, the suffering he endured, that we could be called children of God. Let's remember him together. Similarly, even as that cracker points to his body broken, the cup of juice points us to his blood shed for us, his life's blood poured out. The Bible says over and over again, and here in the book of Hebrews as well. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Our sin required 
a death penalty. Jesus paid it all. And so we who receive the benefits of this, we remember him. Let's honor him. And as you go out this week to whatever pursuits God brings across your path this week, you go out as a representative of Jesus, power of the Spirit of God living within you because that's what he does. I'd love to pray for us as we stand. Would you join me, please? Our Father, we have attempted a bit this morning. Thank you for your enablement. And I pray that you would take the things we have wanted to communicate about and enliven them to us, that we would glory in you, our God, King, Savior. Give us a greater hunger always to know more of you. Guide us this week. Point us to Christ. Keep us from sin. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.